Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Breast Cancer Conversations. My name is Laura, and it's so great, as always, every week to be speaking with you. Thank you all for tuning in. And if it's your first time listening to us, I'm so glad you're here. A couple of quick announcements and maybe some housekeeping items before we jump into today's dialogue. I just want to let you know, as summer is upon us, survivingbreastcancer.org, the nonprofit who produces our podcast, Breast Cancer Conversations, is hosting our annual fundraiser this summer. Starting on July 15th, running through August 31st, we will be going coast to coast virtually, logging and tracking our miles, whether you're hiking, swimming, biking, running, name any activity, etc. We hope to go coast to coast 3000 miles over the course of six weeks. You can actually set up your fundraising team now currently and I'll link to all of the details below in the show notes. But you can actually start a fundraising team, start going out to ask for donations from family and friends. So that way we can keep our podcast and our programming free to the breast cancer community. This week's conversation is a continuation from last week where we spoke with Christian, Andrew, and Jimmy, moderated by Abigail Johnston. These three men share the stories of their wives, Emily, Sonia, and Melissa. They provide concrete and tactical advice on how to cope dealing with metastatic breast cancer and losing your best friend and spouse to this hideous disease. We get into the nitty gritty, how to take care of yourself as the caregiver, as well as tips and the wish I had knowns. If only I had known I should get a financial planner. If only I had these conversations sooner or earlier. If Melissa needed a clinical trial that for some reason wasn't covered by insurance, how was I going to pay it? And every day I woke up freaking out about how I was going to pay to make sure my wife stayed alive. Or maybe we just didn't want to talk about it because it's the nightmare, right? We don't want to admit that someone we love is dying, even if it means that we are planning for our future, because that means our future is without that person. When you craft this disorder, as she herself would say, it helps you um, cope with that disorder in your life, cope with that chaos in your life. So all of this was trying to shape the enormous disorder and chaos and fear and anxiety that's sort of sweeping over our lives. Yeah, I think it's I think it's tremendously important to to take that time for yourself uh, to really recharge your own battery so that you can continue to be the best partner you can be. This is a powerful conversation, perhaps one of the most powerful conversations we've had on the podcast. I urge you to listen to it and hear the compassion and love of these difficult topics that sometimes we shy away from and don't want to have because we're scared. But I'm reminded again and again that we have to have these conversations because when we ask Christian, Jimmy, and Andrew about their wives of Emily, Melissa, and Sonia, we say their names and tell these stories so that their memories can live on. It is an honor and pleasure to be speaking with these three men. And thank you again, Abigail, for being such a great partner in our NBC webinar series. Welcome to the conversation. I want to come back to you, Christian, and talk about this idea of the person that you have always relied on, your best friend, your wife, not being able to lean on her in the same way and and how you dealt with that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's the if you ever have been in a caregiver group, support group, it's the common refrain is, um, yeah, 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 she has cancer. What about me? <laughs> um, because, yeah, it's, you, you know, you don't lose your humanity when your partner is diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, you do have to uh, often set it aside for a lot of the time. You're very much not the the priority. And I, I think all of us gladly put ourselves aside for our partners, but there's definitely a limit to how much any one person can do that and for how long before it starts to wear on you. Again, when you if you're ever in a in a caregiver group, the, the common refrain is you have to take care of yourself. Um, because you can't you're no good to anyone if you're burnt out, including your partner. Andrew, can we come to you and talk about the coping and how you took care of yourself as a caregiver while Anya was living with metastatic breast cancer? Listening to Christian, I'm, uh, I'm mindful that uh, being in a uh, support group would have been really good for me, <laughs> but I wasn't in the uh, I was all alone. Um, my best friend was Anya. Um, we shared everything together. I did not like diversify my friend crops. You know what I mean? Like I had no support network, none. Mm-hmm. Anya was my support network. Um, we were each other's um, best friend. And so it was difficult. I think um, Anya was an uh, introspective person, though she could be an extrovert when she wanted to, obviously getting up and reading or going and teaching. But she was methodical and disciplined in her poetry. She would sit down for a couple of hours every day. But she could also slip in a half hour or 45 minutes of poetry here or there, you know, grabbing some free time when she could. And I would kind of respect her closed door. My own creativity, I've learned, is collaborative. And it relies uh, oftentimes on other people's um, schedules. And I couldn't just sort of steal a moment here or there, just just like with Christians, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, it's, it's dependent upon other people. So I remember at one point I was doing work with uh, anti-trafficking and uh, Anya was in remission. She said, you know, if you come out, if I come out of remission, I was going around giving uh, talks around town. If I come out of remission, you're going to be awfully sorry, you know. And so I quit, you know, I stopped doing that. And instead... I was like, I'll find something really close to home. I got involved in park restoration. We live right on a park. And I felt this huge satisfaction planting a tree. It just it was therapy to me um, to be able to see life growing in the midst of this fear that I had. I needed that. I needed that for my own sanity. But what would inevitably happen is these collaborative processes, which in my mind wouldn't take that much time. It's right in front of the house. You know, you can always call me back. Inevitably, things are way more complex because they're collaborative. Getting anything done in a city like Macon takes time. And you're on the phone and interrupting, and it's it's really difficult. And um, I think there were times where those projects, um, even though they were right in front of my house, uh, drew me away. I remember thinking after Anya died that if I I would axe every goddamn tree in the park if I could spend five more minutes with her, you know, we planted 350 trees out there and uh, I was fuming with myself for 
for spending that time, but that time kept me sane. And, um, and then the other thing that kept me sane is, is, um, writing music. That's probably where my therapy was. Um, I would write, I wrote so many songs about what I was going through or what other people were going through. And then I would sing them with, with my band and the band is also collaborative. We also tried to meet twice a week. We'd usually meet once a week, but those would go for like three hours where Anya would be on her own for three hours every week. And, um, mm. She was understanding, but I think she also made me understand that, um, you know, that that was difficult. And so I don't know. I think, I think, as a spouse that that was that was the most difficult balancing act that um uh, you know christian talked about leading to some fights uh, anya wasn't like the fighting type but i know i know that that was difficult and um and it's one of the few things i really re- regret and i don't know how i would do it i think i would set clearer boundaries but it's hard it's hard when your life is getting sucked into these emergencies these urgent things that are happening here or there so um yeah if i had to do it again i i would um i think try to choose a little bit more wisely there i wonder too though if we're talking about the two and a half years that emily lived with mbc versus eight with mbc 14 with cancer that it's different over time as time goes on it's a little bit easier to take your eyes off what is an emergency because it was almost like you're getting back to a a real life does that does that resonate with you that it was the time that that may have pulled you away a little bit more that's absolutely the case um and um you know i don't think i got to the space where um my parents or her her mom was where or her sister who dearly she loved them but there's a moment when everybody's going to fail in 14 years of living with illness and i think for for the, my relatives for our relatives there was a denial like taking for granted the next month the next year i would live in three month little uh pockets like uh, from scan to scan and so i'd say to myself okay well if this scan was stable or whatever it was i'm going to try to live my life until the next one and then i'll sort of know when things are turning downward and then, you know, we can, I didn't take for granted, but I tried to live in those little pockets, I think. Um, and so to some extent, you know, and after 14 years, I thought maybe she was the unicorn. Maybe she was the exception that this was moving slowly enough that it would be, you know, if you graft it, it was just a real slow thing. And I always knew it could become a, forest fire at any moment it could be something out of control but i thought that i'd have a scan to give me a heads up and so the the other thing to realize is that anya was incredibly productive you know i'm watching her uh she was methodical and disciplined and she put in her work and she's doing what she has always dreamed of doing which is writing book after book after book and i want to try to be successful in those areas of art that I want to be successful in too. And so it was, it's, you know, if anything, her, her incredible poetry career just sort of urged me on to try and, and keep writing plays or keep writing music or keep, keep crafting, you know, because when you craft this disorder, as she herself would say, it helps you 
um, cope with that disorder in your life, cope with that chaos in your life. So all of this was trying to shape the enormous disorder and chaos and fear and anxiety that's sort of sweeping over our lives. It's always easy to look back and say, I could have been perfect in this particular situation. Jimmy, can we come to you in terms of how you coped? How did you take care of yourself? And, and where did you put what you couldn't uh what you couldn't do or when you couldn't lean on Melissa. I'd say I, I wish I had figured out earlier was that as much as Melissa was going through, she always wanted to be supportive of me as well. She always wanted mm. to hear what was going on, what was bothering me, what was wrong. And I personally didn't want to, didn't want to talk to her about it. I felt like, you know, you have stuff going on. This isn't your problem. I'll deal with it. And I think that for me, at least in my experience was, the wrong way to handle it. I think talking to her and letting her know where I was coming from really helped with a lot of, you know, silly arguments, you know, things like at times Melissa would feel like uh, she said, like she felt like she was ruining my life because of everything that we had to go through. And I told her it was, it wasn't you. It was cancer. Cancer fucking sucks. And it, it, it ruined not just my life. It ruined both our lives. For in in certain contexts, sure. So I think you know being willing to just talk to her and lean on her a little bit was something that I think I wish I had picked up on sooner. Um, also, me and Melissa spent a uniquely a large amount of time together. Um, you know, we we went back for graduate degrees during her treatment. We made a movie. We actually started a business together. So we worked from home together. So we were kind of always together. Um, and eventually I tried to find an outlet. And for, for me, you know, writing and filmmaking was always an outlet, but to kind of have my own space, I, I did eventually go to therapy, um, which I think is something I've been encouraging other people in my situation to go do is, is find a therapist. The first therapist I saw was really weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's like breathing exercises and these, uh, I don't know, there was a lot of counting involved. And I remember there was Play-Doh at one point and I just didn't understand. It just wasn't me. And then I found, I finally found a therapist who really I clicked with and I still see her today every two weeks or so. Um, and it really helped me a lot. But, you know, staying, me and Melissa kind of clicked and connected because we had a shared dream. We both wanted to be filmmakers something you know we had spent our lives being told that you know you can't make it in the film industry you're going to be a starving artist you know get a real degree or something like that and and we both had a bit of a chip on our shoulder to prove everyone wrong and i think that motivated both of us cancer be damned like we were going to make it happen and so working together collaboratively really helped a lot being okay with not being okay you know it, it, cancer like i said it sucks and it's just going to kind of keep sucking and it took a lot of time to sort of be able to process that and just live with it if that makes sense jimmy did you and Lisa ever have the the conversation that nbc um I know you, you you use the word ruin um that she was concerned that it ruined your life but but did you ever feel like nbc ruined your relationship or or had such a negative effect on on your marriage um 
just just by it being part of everything? I mean, it certainly added a whole a whole lot more stress and anxiety to everything. I mean, everything kind of it compressed timelines, you know, like even simple things like, oh yeah, let's go on vacation. Well, we have to go tomorrow because there might not be a day after that, you know? And so it became a lot of, we got to do everything right now. We got to live a lifetime worth of experiences in the next six months because who knows what's after that. Um, and I think that brought in incredible levels of tension and stress, you know, whether we could afford it or whether, you know, she was healthy, feeling up to going, you know, I mean, cancer treatment's not cheap. And, and you know, if it, 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 when you start at 23 years old doing uh, cancer treatment, and then you're just starting out with, uh, with new jobs, it's, it's kind of hard to, it's hard to move on from, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, it's only money. It's like, yeah, it's only money until you don't have it. So it's something that definitely built in a lot of uh, stress, but also allowed us to get past some of the smaller things that I think some couples might struggle with, you know, whatever that may be. We, you know, no matter how difficult the challenge might be, we always could say, well, it's not cancer. So can't be that big of a deal. I just want to, this resonates so much with me. And if I could, one of the other things, if I could do, if I could go back, I would say, meet with a goddamn money manager or because uh, we were financial idiots when we were going through this, both of us. Um, and we were $30,000 in debt because Anya wanted to go to Switzerland because every year was the last year. And so we'd want all these sort of big vacations. And eventually I got, I started getting scared that, you know, I've got a child to take care of and $30,000 in debt was growing, growing, growing. Uh, and I think if I had known that, you know, you get $1,000 for a child from Social Security per month, you know, she didn't have any life insurance, but the life insurance offered from the, uh, from the school was enough, uh, was more than I thought. Um, uh, I thought it was just going to be enough to cover funeral expenses. Um, uh, I would have absolutely, absolutely, if I had known that stuff, I would not. I would have been like, yeah, let's just go out and spend money uh, a bit more. Yeah, you know, we we saved up a bunch of money for you know what was going to be one last big trip where we were going to go all over Europe, and unfortunately, twenty twenty hit, and then that was off the table. So it became kind of this thing where I wish we didn't wait, but I also had this fear of you know how I have the personal fear mostly that not so much the future as much as. If Melissa needed a clinical trial that for some reason wasn't covered by insurance, how was I going to pay it? And every day I woke up freaking out about how I was going to pay to make sure my wife stayed alive. You know, that's that's not a great way to live life, you know. And so I think, it, it uh, yes, a money manager looking into options and like what what is out there is is something that definitely. The reason you don't want to do it is because you have to say, what happens when my wife dies? You know, I don't want to have that conversation because I, I don't want to because it's like naming the thing that, that you that you fear the most. So what we want to talk about next is the the transition and and the end of each of your wives lives. What you felt went well, what you might have done differently. And uh, Christian, I want to start 
Emily did dying for a living in a way, which oh, I think that's the first time I've said it that way. That's, that's catchy. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so she, I am very fortunate that she thought about that a lot. Um, I have a very close dear friend um, who is now a dear friend who uh, was uh, also stage four. Emily knew his wife through um, uh, her support group at MSK. Um, she ended up dying two months after Emily did, and and her 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 husband and I have become close um, since then. But you know she refused to talk about it, refused to think about it, refused to do any planning estate-wise, you know, money-wise, directive-wise, healthcare proxy, power of attorney, any of that stuff just was like, nope, I'm not going to die, um, which I totally get. Um, but I will say it made his life so much harder when she died. Um, caused so much more work for him. And I am so eternally grateful for all of the work and all of the effort that Emily put in to it before she died um, to make things as absolutely easy as she could for me. Um, so anyone who's listening who has been struggling with the idea of having those conversations it's the honestly the biggest gift of love that you can give your partner is to get your will done, write down what it is you want for your funeral, write down if there are special things that you want certain people to have, write it down. If there's someone like Emily bought cards, greeting cards, she loved sending greeting cards to friends and after she died, I discovered an entire box of cards that she had bought ahead of time and labeled for Margaret's birthday, for mom at Christmas, for and, and it's like a year's worth of cards um, that she would have sent um, that I've been filling out and sending on her behalf because she would have wanted it. And, and I'm thrilled to be able to do that. Um, and as are the recipients, of course, there are there are things that she knew to do that you may not know to do. Um, Abigail, you and I have talked many times about setting up something that lays all these things out. But like she had all of her bank accounts that weren't already joint accounts set up with me as you know payable on death. So all I had to do was go to the bank and say she died. Here's the death certificate. And they go, OK. And they shoved all the money over to me didn't have to go through probate, didn't have to go through the will and the estate. I literally didn't have to even file any sort of estate forms for anything because everything was set up so that it would just automatically go to me. It avoided any court stuff, any legal stuff. Um, and I'm sitting here expecting to have to do a lot more than I did and was so, so grateful for it. Um, other things that she did, uh, you know, we talked about my life after she was gone. 
um, what that would look like, you know, that, you know, she made it very clear. She wanted me to, if I was interested in it, she wanted me to find love again. She wanted Felix to have a mom in his life again. Um, her one, her one stipulation was that the next wife couldn't have a bigger ring than she did, but, <laughs> but you know, I, that's, that's only fair. <laughs> um, but, uh, it, you know, it was something, it was something that was in, incredibly difficult, incredibly painful to talk about, but has, has made my life since her death so much more comfortable because I don't have, I don't worry about what would Emily have wanted? What would she have wanted me to do? How would she have wanted me to act? I know because she told me and she even wrote it down. <laughs> she wrote me letters she created an email address for me um, that before she died, she sent emails to. She sent poems that she'd written, letters, jokes, limericks um, uh, for me and an account for Felix as well. She, had, she didn't do nearly as much as she planned to do. It was, it was hard for her to do it, but she did send, you know, about a dozen things to it that I, I treasure. Um, now, she didn't, uh, <laughs> she didn't write down, she told me that that email existed, but she did not write down what the email was or what its password was. And she was literally on her deathbed, non-responsive, and I'm sitting here shaking her, panicking, like, you got to tell me what the email address is. <laughs> and she goes, no, don't worry about it. I'll I'll tell you later when I'm feeling better. And I'm like, you're dying. You're not feeling better. Even that one little thing that she didn't do caused me so much panic. Like, I can't imagine if she hadn't done all of the amazing things that she did do, that I did know that she did, um, how much harder life would have been um, in the wake of her death. Um, so absolutely, please have those conversations Talk about where and how you want to die. Um, you know, she she wanted to, did not want to die in the hospital. She said, I want to be home. I want to be in the big bed. I brought the big bed downstairs because she couldn't go upstairs anymore. So I spent a day collapsing the big king bed and dragging it all downstairs and reassembling it because um, she wanted to be in her bed with the cats and me and Felix. And, um, and that's what she got. Um, not everyone is fortunate enough to be able to have the death that they hoped for if you made those plans, but luckily she did and, and we were able to honor her wishes because we knew what they were. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna second everything Christian said. Anya also wrote down funeral arrangements and things that she wanted. She also had well, Anya uh like 10 people who she said should absolutely not be let into her hospital room. You know, at any and and then she had people who do not let these people speak at my funeral. You know, the, the people have no idea either. Uh, this is how sly you can be about about you know things that that made her angry. I was shocked that for people in acute emotional distress and and um, being thrown back in the worst possible way that you're, you suddenly have to administer, administer all of these different things coming at you incredibly quickly. And that was, that was a little bit unexpected too. Um, you know, I, I'm not in my right mind. Thankfully, I, you know, this is a piece of advice. 
um, we had somebody who was good with money, who was a good friend of mine and Anya's and she just stepped up and like organized all my finances for me. Like, uh, she, she just helped me when I was, uh, in most need of help. And that was so, so helpful and, and wonderful. It's the nightmare. It's the nightmare situation. It's the nightmare scenario. Uh, Anya always worried about this. That Monday, we were supposed to go in and get a whole slew of tests, get another scan. And every time you know this, everybody in the metastatic community knows this, you have scanxiety. Whatever phantom or real symptoms in your body, you're going to feel them most acutely the day before you come in to get um, a scan. And so she started feeling shortness of breath. She had a acute shortness of breath when she had gotten the Guggenheim a few months earlier, came back right before the scan. And it was a great scan. Oftentimes scans don't correspond to symptoms. So she had shortness of breath out on a hundred degree day. The next day we were laughing and idiocracy. And I think, you know, Anya was so used to kind of driving some of these fears inside that, um, you know, there was just some confusion, I guess, uh, that, but even that last day wasn't, wasn't terribly unusual. And then on that Sunday, that was a Saturday. So this is the weekend and we have to figure out, do we go down to the emergency room at a sub-rate hospital here in Macon on Saturday night when it looks like total chaos down there. And when you're already immunosuppressed, how do you deal with this? What's going on on a Saturday night? You're going to wait for hours down there. Is this going to be worse than actually what you're dealing with? If she gets a, a respiratory cold with lung meds. That could, that could hurt her, you know? We're living in the midst of COVID. I can't imagine what that's like right now for the metastatic community because we were paranoid about the flu. And so we went to a little doc in the box here, a little urgent care clinic on Sunday. He said, oh, this is pneumonia. I see it on the x-rays. It's in three lobes. It's no big deal. Just take this antibiotic. It'll be fine. If something happens, go down to the hospital. You could take an antibiotic there. That's even more, you know, uh, pervasive and strong, and that'll take care of it, no problem. And he misdiagnosed her. He just misdiagnosed her. She was having a pericardial effusion. We were always on the lookout for um, pleural effusions. That was the fear. Now, she had known about pericardial effusions. I had no idea what a pericardial effusion was. We were like, is there a pleural effusion there? No, there's no pleural effusion. So we went to the hospital. We walked in the hospital arm in arm together at 8 p.m. And uh, she was in the emergency room. They still didn't really diagnose her well in the emergency room. They dismissed us to her normal hospital room. And it was only at midnight when we couldn't get a read on her blood pressure and her temperature because her temperature was so low that all of a sudden the, the room was flooded with people from ICU. And suddenly, you know, I had been preparing just to spend a couple of days there, possibility of a bad scan, but I don't know. And then all of a sudden, um, it's life or death if we don't take her down to ICU and she might not even make it there. And by the way, they still didn't know it was a pericardial effusion. They had no idea what it was. It was a night shift down at Macon's Hospital. They threw everything at it. And finally, in the morning, morning shift, woman came in. She's in ICU. They said, wait out here. She'll stabilize in 20, 30 minutes, and then we'll bring you in. So I'm not allowed in there with her. And so I wasn't with her. Uh, I, I begged to be in there with her at one point. They let me in here for a little while. It was a terrible scene. I had to decide in very little time whether to intubate her. And now we know the horrors of intubation because we are living in the COVID world. 
I had no idea what that meant. I knew that the nurse told me that if she's not intubated, she'd die. And I knew that I wanted to keep her alive. And when I found out what intubation was, I think I, um, I, uh, I, I feel such, uh, I feel such regret. I felt such regret for that after she died. At the time I thought she had pneumonia and that we could keep her alive, stabilize her with antibiotics. And then afterwards, uh, Dr. Dyson over there at uh, Johns Hopkins said, I did exactly the right thing, even with pericardial effusion, you can often keep people alive for months and months. Still, it was, uh, it was a terrible thing. I remember the first time, I'd never gotten communion. I grew up Jewish. Anya was Episcopalian, grew up Russian Orthodox. And I went in there, and for the first time I took communion, And uh, I think the reason I did that was to get in touch with her suffering. And I just um, imagined that the communion was the intubation. Anya didn't want that. She would have wanted to go quickly, but not in that way, not, not trying to be resuscitated. Um, so, yeah, that, that was uh, just insanely difficult. But a good reminder that we have no idea what could happen. And that could happen to any any one of us. And it just underscores the importance of talking about what would someone want in all of those different scenarios. And, and you knew what Anya didn't want. Jimmy, would you like to talk about um, Melissa and uh, what happened towards the end for her? It was in June, right, that she passed away? June 21st. Um, yeah, she, she, she wasn't really one to plan all of what was going on. So, I mean, it was one of those things where I almost had to kind of read between the lines of things she would say, especially, well, we were, once she passed, we were in the middle of writing a, a follow-up film to our movie Ginger. And a lot of that kind of went through the the process of the the loss and and funeral planning and i feel like during that we kind of got i got some idea of what she wanted but she never really wanted to one i don't think she knew exactly what she wanted which was okay um but it was also that it wasn't a conversation that either of us were willing to have and i'm glad that i i paid enough attention to kind of get an idea of what she wanted. You know, um, a lot of the stuff actually we haven't even been able to do yet because COVID has restricted so much that, you know, we had a small funeral service, but that was, that was about it. So we're kind of holding off. I have her ashes over here, actually, even beyond the the planning of all that. I think Melissa was put into hospice um, for the last, I'd say, I think it was about two weeks that she was in hospice. And I don't think either of us really accepted what hospice meant, um, that, that, you know, it was more about uh, palliative care and keeping her comfortable and, and that there really wasn't much left they can do. And for us, we just, we kept looking for more treatments. We just didn't kind of take that as preparing for the end. Um, and I wish we had done a little bit more, especially with the hospice, because, I mean, I have images in my mind that will will stay with me forever about the day Melissa got 
well, the day she passed, she, um, she ended up in a lot of pain and the hospice people were supposed to send over some, uh, pain medication and, and anxiety medication to help. And it took something like five hours for them to deliver the medicine. And I just remember kind of losing it a little bit at the, the palliative care nurse who was here, who, you know, I, I get it. Things happen, but when something like that is going on, I mean, the fact that one pharmacist didn't sign off on it so they didn't go out with the delivery just drove me nuts. And I, I just wish that we had spent two, three days earlier getting the drugs ready, getting the, they, they brought over a ventilator, uh, an oxygen tank for her, which again, this all happened the day of. So it was kind of like this mad scramble. And, you know, one of Melissa's wishes was to have immediate family and friends here and so her mom was here, her sister, her brother-in-law, and a couple of very close cousins were here. And I, I couldn't really function. I mean, I, I'm really glad that they were all there because especially um, my brother-in-law, uh, Dan, he, he was able to kind of step up and take, take some of the, the reins of uh, handling everything that was going on while me and Melissa's sister were both kind of just lost in grief. And, you know, I, I think, I think a little bit more planning would have been uh, better for me personally, but um, you know, it, it, I mean, it was the most difficult moment of my life. So it's, it's hard to really say what worked and what didn't work when, when really at, at the end of the day, everything sucked anyway. So, I mean, um I think, and also, you know, a big thing for me was having people to fall back on. I mentioned Dan, but also a good friend, another Melissa in my life. <laughs> she, um, you know, she helped with all of the funeral planning um, from, you know, prayer cards and to uh, what, you know, we had to do these weird things with, um, I think they can only have like 20 people in the building because of COVID. So we had to like have a rotating thing. And I just, mm -hmm. I was like, you know, I've done a lot of event planning in my life, but this is not the kind of event planning I ever want to do. Um, so having and relying on people around me really was, um, I mean, I, I can't begin to thank those people enough for everything they did. Jimmy, I think you made such a great point about how you were taking your cues from, from Melissa. And as much as we're talking about what is what went well, what didn't go well, et cetera, at, at the end of the day, taking the cues, taking your cues from the person who is going through it is so important. Um, as much as maybe having these conversations could make things a, a bit better, um, it is still the person who is dying and it's their wishes. And if they don't want to plan and if they don't want to talk about it, then honoring what that is love, right? That is showing love to, to your, to your spouse or to your friend or whoever it is that following their lead on that. Um, but thank you. Thank you for, sh for sharing that. And for anybody who's listening and watching who asks, what can I do? Um, cause so many people do ask, what can I do? It sounds like you've given, um, some really key things that doing some of those, uh, what Andrew was saying, the banality, uh, the, the arrangements, the running around, the, you know, picking up this or picking up that, having somebody to rely on to do that so that the person who is the closest to the person who has died doesn't have to deal with those things. What a gift, what a gift that is. 
Thank you, Andrew, Christian, and Jimmy, for sharing these stories, the ups, the downs, the grief, the pain, the what, what ofs, should ofs, could ofs, and the realities. I really appreciate it. And thank you for taking the time to share with our community on caregiving, coping, and facing the end of life with a loved one, spouse, and best friend in the metastatic breast cancer community. Thank you. You've heard us talk about Citizen for some time now if you've been listening to the podcast for the last couple of weeks. Citizen is amazing. The more that I have been interacting with them, the more and more I am kind of obsessed with their technology. They are there to go out and on behalf of us, the patient, for free, go out and get our medical records so it's consolidated all in one place, making it super easy for us to then be able to send our medical history or medical files to other doctors if we need second opinions, if we end up moving, or if we want to participate in clinical trials. But what Citizen is actually able to do is based on our medical data, they're able to provide us with a matching system to find the clinical trials that we qualify for. You can find out more by visiting citizen.com forward slash SBC clinical trials, and I'll link to it below in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you would like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences, and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.